thinking biblically, and we're seeking to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. And learning how to love God is as we think His thoughts, as we follow the trail of Scripture down different pathways that relate to very important areas of life. If you were here last week, you know we did a, a message on thinking biblically about identity, who you are in Christ. And really following that up today, we have a, a, a brother in the Lord who I've known for a number of years, Jojo Ruba. Uh, I first met Jojo when he was in Ottawa. I was serving there in Ottawa. And even then, uh, I think you were a student maybe then, uh, even then, he just had a heart for the Lord, heart for people, heart for serving. He now serves as the executive director of a ministry called Faith Beyond Belief. He's out of Calgary. He's here doing some speaking and, and traveling. And so when we heard he was in the area, we asked him to come speak on an area that he, he speaks on on university campuses, college groups, Christian schools, churches, uh, speaking to teachers recently, but an area of identity as it relates to our sexuality. And so I'm really delighted that Jojo's here. Can we just give him a nice, warm heritage welcome? That's out of your way. It really is my privilege to come and share with you this morning. I'm always blessed to know that there's colleges and universities and seminaries like this one because there's so many struggles in the church on this issue of sexuality and gender as well as the culture. And I think really if we don't get our act together, if we don't know what's going on, if we don't know how to navigate these kinds of issues, uh, we won't be able to impact the culture because the problem starts with us. I think the responsibility starts with us as well. A few years ago, guys, let's see if this works. A few years ago, try one more time. You might have to help me out here, Alex. One more. Could you help me out there? Okay, one more. That Identity Project, I'll talk more about that. That's the, the program we've actually created on the issue of sexuality and gender to help churches and students deal with the issue. And so for, for our perspective, this is such a, such a big issue. In fact, in Alberta, this program was created because the government was actually trying to force gay-straight alliances onto Christian schools and wanted to give a proper response to it. Yeah, Alex, you might have to help me out here. I'm sorry, man. Uh, it is on. Yep, it is on. Yeah. I made the mistake once at one talk, for sure, so I didn't know how to do this now. A few years ago, I saw this picture of the front cover of the Calgary Herald of a young boy wearing a T-shirt that said, go ahead, one more time, when I grow up, I'm free to be what I want to be. And that's great if he wants to be a hockey star, he wants to be prime minister, maybe if he wants to be a doctor or a lawyer. But he was actually wearing this as part of the LGBT pride parade in Calgary. And which means this three or four-year-old boy is proclaiming to the world that he can be whatever he wants to be, whether it's a man or a woman or attracted to women or attracted to men. And this question of identity has become such a big part of our culture, even challenging someone's identity is seen as hateful or bigoted. And, and at, at this age, at this stage, it broke my heart to even think about that, because what if he wants to be something like a, a thief or a rapist? Don't, don't we realize that some identities are not exactly the best identity to have? Keep going, Alex. I'm sorry, I might need your help there. One more. So that when we talk about identity, I think it goes back to how we define this term. Because as Christians, as Pastor Rick already talked about last week, this is also an important part of who we are as believers. Keep going. The dictionary says that identity... Oh, oh maybe I got that word. Good. <laughs> identity is the fact of being or who or what a person or thing is. 
the, a fact or being of who or what a person or thing is. And you notice both it's what you are and what you do. But this definition also leads to the idea that when it comes to our identity, we have multiple things that we are. There are multiple things that we do. Isn't that fair to say? So, for example, people can identify with their religious beliefs, or that can be the form or the heart of what their identity is. People can identify with their physical traits. There's a picture from a redhead convention, right? You can make that the core of who you are. You can also identify based on the kinds of things you prefer or like or the kinds of things you do. Like, for example, if you like wearing fruit on your head and cheering for the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, right? That could be part of your identity as well. But obviously in our culture today, our sexuality and our gender identity has become such a key part of our identity that people challenge us if we even question that. And here's the other thing. It's become something that's immutable, something that is, is, uh, defines us to the core of what we actually are as human beings. But I think you can notice when you go through these kinds of identities that all of these identities are things that, that shape us but it's up to us to decide which of those identities we ought to prioritize to define who we are. In other words, when we talk about identity, our identity is a choice. I want us to understand, I'm not saying your sexual orientation or your gender selection is a choice. That's a different discussion, and I'd be glad to have that another time. I'm saying you can choose to make your sexual orientation the main thing that defines who you are. And I think that's a big mistake that our culture is making, and one that the church can speak to in a way where we actually offer a better identity. See, that, that's the challenge. When I talk to young people, I talk to teenagers, and they're struggling with their sexual ideas or attractions, the culture tells them that you must follow this path and you must follow this identity if you have these feelings. And what we need to be able to convey to them is at the end of the day, we have so many things that define us. It really is our choice to make that the most important part of our identity. And that message isn't getting through. As believers, though, I think we have an opportunity to speak about identity. I want to share a story with you from Scripture and learn three ways we can choose to identify. And and I love this passage. It's a great passage to read along, so you're welcome to do it. But I also just found a clip uh, on on YouTube that actually walks through. This is actually verbatim from Scripture, because I think it's important to also visualize what Jesus and the first people he's interacting with in this story we're doing. Go ahead, uh, Alice, if you could play them. This Pharisee invited Jesus to have dinner with him, and Jesus went to his house and sat down to eat. Come along, children. Up you go. You heard me. Go. Up all the mischief going, but good, son. Two men who owed money to a moneylender. One owed him 500 silver coins, the other 50. 
Neither of them can pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Which one then will love him more? I suppose that it would be the one who was forgiven more. You are right. You see this woman? I came into your home. You gave me no water for my feet. She has washed my feet with her tears, dried them with her hair. You did not welcome me with a kiss. Since I came, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You provided no olive oil for my head. But she has anointed my feet with perfume. Tell you then, the great love she has shown proves that her many sins are forgiven. Whoever is forgiven little, shows only a little. Your sins are forgiven you. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This story gives us three ways we can choose an identity. And I think it's important for us as we navigate through these issues of sexuality and gender identity to understand this is the op- these are the options we actually can offer to people who are struggling with these issues. The first is that we can identify with, based on how we feel about ourselves. When we talk about this woman who's coming to see Jesus, she's so, uh, her view of herself is so low, she doesn't even greet him. Right? She, she, she does everything she can to show honor because she feels so unworthy. And based on Simon's reaction, it's likely she was a sexual sinner, someone who had committed all kinds of sexual acts that the people of Israel would say that she's beneath us. She's not even worth being touched. And, and when it comes to our culture, this is, I think, the number one ideology or belief system when it comes to identity. We can define who we are, and our feelings are the central point of our identity. In fact, I, I love this clip. It's from the University of Seattle. And this guy is talking to students, hopefully smart university students, right? And, and asking them questions of identity. I want you to pay attention to this because I want you to see how they struggle with trying to even come up with a way to question or challenge someone's identity, even if it's the most ridiculous notion ever. Go ahead, Alex. There's been a lot of talk about identity lately, but how far does it go? And is it possible to be wrong? We went to the University of Washington to find out. Are you aware of the debate happening in Washington State around um, the ability to access bathrooms, locker rooms, spas based on gender identity and gender expression? I I think people should be able to have access to the facility. I think. Uh, bathrooms could and potentially should be gender neutral because there doesn't need to be a classification for differences. I think people definitely should have the ability to go into whichever locker room they want. Uh, I feel like at least public universities should do their best to accommodate for those who do not have a specific uh, gender identity. You know, whether you identify as male or female and whether you're sex at birth is matching to that, you should be able to utilize the resources. So if I told you that I was a woman, what would your response be? Good for you, okay, like, <laughs> yeah. Nice to meet you. I'll be like, boy, <laughs> really? I don't have a problem with it. 
I'd ask you how you came to that conclusion. If I told you that I was Chinese, what would your response be? I mean, I might be a little surprised, but I would say, good for you. Like, yeah, be who you are. <laughs> I would maybe think you had some Chinese ancestor. I would ask you how you similarly came to that conclusion and why you came to that conclusion. Um, I would have a lot of questions just because on the outside, I would assume that you're a white man. If I told you that I was seven years old, what would your response be? Um, I wouldn't believe that immediately. Uh, I probably wouldn't believe it, but I mean, I, it wouldn't really bother me that much to go out of my way and tell you no, you're wrong. I'd just be like, oh, okay, he wants to say he's seven years old. If you feel seven at heart, then, <laughs> then so be it. Yeah, good for you. <laughs> so if I wanted to enroll in a first grade class, do you think I should be allowed to? Uh, probably not, I guess. I mean, unless you haven't completed first grade up to this point and for some reason you need to do that now. If that's where you feel, like, mentally you should be, then I feel like there are communities that would accept you for that. I would say so long as you're not hindering society and you're not causing harm to other people, I feel like that should be an okay thing. If I told you I'm six feet, five inches, what would you say? That I would question. Why? <laughs> because you're not. <laughs> no, I don't think you're six foot five. If you truly believed you're six five, I don't think it's harmful. I think it's fine if you believe that. It doesn't matter to me if you think you're taller than you are. <laughs> so you'd be willing to tell me I'm wrong? I wouldn't tell you you're wrong. No, but I say that um, I don't think that you are. I feel like that's not my place as like another human to say someone is wrong or to draw lines or boundaries. No, I mean, I wouldn't just go like, oh, you're wrong. Like, that's wrong to believe in it. Because, I mean, again, it doesn't really bother me what you want to think about your height or anything. So, I can be a Chinese woman. You... <laughs> um, sure. But I can't be a six foot five Chinese woman. Yes. If you thoroughly debated me or explained why you felt that you were six foot five, uh, I feel like I would be very open to saying that you are six foot five, or Chinese, or a woman. It shouldn't be hard to tell a five nine white guy that he's not a six foot five Chinese woman, but clearly it is. Why? What does that say about our culture? And what does that say about our ability to answer the questions that actually are difficult? So why was that so hard for so many of them? To answer basic questions like that. Isn't it because we're programmed to not offend people's feelings, right? And to say someone's wrong is automatically seen as an attack against someone's identity. But the fruit of this, and we see this everywhere, is that we now live in a generation with so many gender and sexual identities. When I, go to a, when I went to the largest gay Christian conference in Chicago this year, even the presenters said they didn't know what the names of every gender identity was. They themselves don't know. Right? And, and here's the challenge. If feelings determine our identity, if our personal feelings, yes, I, I try to figure out what those are. I'm not really sure. I'm just, this is just something that's there. There's 78 gender identities at least on Facebook. And some universities and colleges can actually let you choose your own when you apply. The problem is it just doesn't stop there. If you can change or choose your gender identity based solely on how you feel, then why not other things? This is Rachel Dalazal from Washington State as well. She identifies as a black woman because she used to uh, color herself with black crayons when she was a kid. 
She feels black. This is uh, Paul Walsh from the GTA, this area here, 65-year-old man who left his six kids and wife to live as a seven-year-old girl because he he identifies as a seven-year-old girl. That's his identity. That's his self-chosen identity. Or this one, Chloe Jennings White, who identifies as transabled. She lives in a wheelchair, even though she perfectly can walk. Why? Because she feels like she identifies with the disabled community. Or this one, Richard Hernandez, who not only identifies as female, identifies as a dragon, uh, named Eva Tiamat Baphomet Medusa. He actually got his eyes colored green, uh, tattooed scales on his face, his tongue got forked, and his nose and his ears got removed so he can look like a snake. But that's his identity. And the question that we need to ask is, does it stop? Is this something that's healthy to choose an identity that's based solely on how you feel? Listen, we already know the answer to that when it comes to something like anorexia, where a person sees themselves as severely overweight when they're actually really thin. And it actually can kill them if their feelings override their understanding of what their physical body actually is. So if we know it's wrong on that, what about all the others? Isn't it, isn't it a problem when our feelings become the sole source of our identity? A second option the story gives us is that our identity is based on how others feel about us. The passage in Luke 7 is so biting. Simon's thought about this woman who comes and washes Jesus' feet is this. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know how, who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. She's so terrible that good people like the Pharisee won't even let uh, that person touch them. That's the identity that he sees. He sees solely her sexual sin, her sexual identity, and that defines her for the rest of his life and hers as well. No wonder she's desperate for forgiveness. What's interesting, and this is something that I've been researching as part of my doctoral thesis, is that our culture, even secular historians, actually admit that sexual identity is a social construct. It was actually created only about 150 years ago. Hannah Blank, who's not friendly to the Christian worldview, and other LGBT historians actually talk about how they studied the term heterosexual and homosexual. It was coined in Germany around 150 years ago to promote homosexual practice. Now, obviously, homosexual activity happened way before that. It's mentioned in the Bible. But this idea that it's an immutable identity is something that was created by people trying to advocate for the equal treatment of homosexual activity to heterosexual ones. You can read more about that in her book, Straight, A Surprisingly Short History of Heterosexuality. In other words, we've created a whole identity in our culture based on sexuality that was actually not biologically true. Sexual orientations and feelings can change constantly. And there's plenty of studies that actually show that. Come and talk to me later. I'd be more than happy to talk to you. Now, I'm not suggesting that today that these identities aren't real for people. They clearly are. But the question and the challenge we have, and this is what I ask young people, is that really the most foundational? Is that the most important thing about you? Is that the only thing that defines you? I would argue you're so much more than that. That has given you so much more in that identity. In fact, when we, we, we think about this, the impact of this book or this idea that sexuality becomes your identity, we can actually just see it looking at old photos. Here's a men's basketball team from 1915. Guys, notice what they're doing there? You think you'd ever pose that way with your men's basketball team or any team that you work with? Now, here's what happened less than 30 years later. Here's a basketball team from 1942. What do you think happened? 
this idea that sexuality is your identity impacted our social interactions because people didn't want to be labeled with this identity anymore. And this kind of behavior, which is common still in different parts of the world, uh, where people express same-sex intimacy as a good thing, as a God-given thing, but not a sexual thing, that's been lost in our culture. I think a lot of us in our culture are missing that. By the way, that's happening to ladies as well, because they're understanding when we take the idea that love is love, which means we take all the loves God designed us to have and sexualize them. And that's what happens when we make sexuality our identity. The problem is when we make those feelings change or determine our facts, we can't escape the facts. For example, if you go online, you can buy a t-shirt that says there are more than two genders. Have you seen this before? Probably something you've probably seen worn by people as well. The problem is it's facts that determine feelings. It's what, what we believe, what's true that actually changes how we feel. It's like when you're mad at your brother for eating your sandwich and you realize it's actually your mom who ate it. But you're no longer hopefully mad at your brother. In the same way, facts have a way of coming back and reasserting itself, even if we want to deny those facts. So for example, that shirt that you can buy, this is there are more than two genders. When you actually look to buy it, you realize it's only available in male and female sizes. <laughs> Because you can't escape reality. You can't escape the facts. So let's go back to my last point. When you go back to Luke 7, and you contrast what the woman thinks of herself, what Simon the Pharisee thinks of herself as her identity, there's one more person, obviously, in the story. And it's the idea that the fact that Jesus never sees this woman through her sexual identity. She She sees herself this way. She hates herself that way. Simon hates herself that way. But Jesus sees her as a woman needing forgiveness. And, and that means he doesn't take away or doesn't minimize sin. Sin is there. She has to deal with it. That's why she's with Jesus. That's why she's washing his feet. She wants to talk to him. She wants to, to find that, that forgiveness. But Jesus doesn't see her just through the sexual identity that the rest of the culture does. And I think that leaves a challenge for us as well. You know, at the end of the day, when we talk about identity, when we talk about these kinds of issues, I think the church has made the mistake in buying into the concept the culture created about identity, that we are defined this way. We, we kick people out. We harm people who then identify as whatever they choose. However, I think we need to offer a better identity, the identity that Jesus offers us. In Galatians 3.26, Paul says, For you, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ." There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. It doesn't mean our ethnicity or our gender disappears. It means all of those things become secondary for identity based on how our maker sees us, not how we feel about ourselves. In fact, I love the fact when you look at the city of Antioch, right? That's the first place where the word Christian was used to describe believers in Jesus, right? Here's the thing that I, I, I read about. When you go back to that time period, the city was divided by ethnicity. It was ghettoized. The Jews, the Greeks, the Romans never interacted with each other until they started becoming Christians. And when they had becoming, become Christians, they came from all of these groups and started fellowshiping together, united under one new name and one new banner. That's why they needed the new name. In other words, the word Christian has always been the word to unite people of diverse backgrounds and to give them a new identity. And there's no other identity that's 
that's even second to that, that has to be our primary identity if we're followers of Jesus. That's why this thing called gay Christian to modify the word Christian doesn't make any sense because there's no modifier to that word. We're one in Christ first. And we need to remember when we talk about that, with the, the book, that this story shows that Jesus does not love peop- identities. Jesus loves people. And we have to stop trying to create categories of people and start loving people as they are, people needing grace, people needing forgiveness. And that's what I hope I can challenge you as. As as seminary uh, students, as people in Bible college, there's great opportunities for us to not be scared of this issue, but to redeem the opportunities God gives us to show people a better identity, to show them a better way of thinking about what sexuality is. It's a great gift, and we have a great resource, and there's some in, in the back. You're welcome to take a look. But God's given us, we need to celebrate that sexual identity God gives us as part of his design. Because at the end of the day, that shouldn't be what defines us. God is the one who designed us and who defined us. A few years ago, I, I was giving a presentation on transgenderism. And it was interesting because I got a chance to speak to a young man who came at the end of my presentation. And he said this, I hate everything you just said. I disagree with it. And, and, I, 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 and he wanted to talk some more. And I said, you know, I'd love to talk to you. I want to hear more about your thoughts. And, and so what, let's, let's go out for coffee. Let's, why don't we chat over them? And so we started going regularly for coffee. It turns out he was trans- transitioning as well from male to female. And as someone who was transitioning, he was becoming more and more feminine as we, our meetings kept going. He actually also grew up in the church, was actually taking a, a course for Christian counseling at a local Bible college and wanted to pursue that as someone who was transgender. And I, I thought, man, this is really interesting. We, we, I said, okay, well, why don't we like, do Bible study together? Why don't we, we chat about your theology and mine and let's have a conversation? And we did. And we've been meeting regularly still. It's a great opportunity to just interact with someone who needs grace just like I do. The second time we met, I remember we, had, we were at Starbucks and we had this great dialogue, great theological discussion. And at the end of it, I said, hey, can I just, can I just pray for you? Is that okay? So he said, for, for sure. So in the middle of the Starbucks, I remember closing my eyes and, and praying. And then as soon as my eyes opened after we finished praying, I realized there was an angry looking, very large, very upset woman sitting near us who stood up and stomped towards our table. And my first thought is, where is the exit? <laughs> my second thought was, I realized the only thing between me and her as she got to our table was an empty Starbucks cup. I'm thinking, I don't think I can hide behind that very soon, very well. And, and, and so she came and she said this to me. She said, you know, my partner is transgender and my child is also transgender. And as she's saying this, I'm sinking slowly in my chair, trying not to get hit, right? Finally, she says, you're the first Christian I've ever seen pray with a transgender person. And I just came here to thank you for being willing to do that. And that broke my heart is why should I be the first? Shouldn't we be the first people to care for those whose identities are so lost that they do not realize the wealth of identity that we find we come to our maker? And I hope that's the challenge I can give to you. At the end of the day, this is, the, this is the, what the debate is about. It's not about sex. It's not about gender. It's about who defines us, who knows best how to define us, and who loves us best to give us the best identity, the identity of his son. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for reminding us every day how much we need you. 
how much grace we need from you. And we're grateful, Lord, that it's in your word that you show us what our true identity, our true worth is all about. God, I don't know who's here who may be struggling with their own identity. Maybe, maybe they're struggling with how they feel about themselves. Maybe they look down on themselves so much. Please remind them, as you remind us, that our identity is not based on how we feel about ourselves. Our identity is not based on what other people feel about us. Our identity is based on what you feel about us. And we know how you feel about us because we look at that empty cross and know that's where you sent your son to die to save us. We thank you, Lord, that that cross is empty, that tomb is empty, and that one day we will truly understand how blessed we are to follow you. And we pray this in your son's name. We've got just a few minutes before uh, we're here, and we know this is our one shot with you. Let me just ask you a couple questions, sure. okay? How do you articulate this in a setting where people don't acknowledge God as creator, yes. as good? Because like we would say, okay, we're, we're with you. God gets to define our identity. Yes. What do you say to somebody who goes, well, I don't believe in your God. I don't believe in any God. Well, that's a great, great point. And this is often where we're rubbing shoulders. Even before I get to these conversations on sexuality, gender, the difficult ones, my first principle is what Jesus told them, the 70 when he sent them out. Find the man or woman of peace or make them one. Help, help establish ground rules for conversations. For example, can we both agree that loving people does not mean that you have to agree with everything they say or do? So when I talk to students, for example, many of them are hostile, even at Christian schools. I ask this question. I ask them, how many of you love your parents? Almost all the hands go up, right? Then I ask, how many of you agree with everything your parents say and do? One time, one person went, had their hand up, and it was dark, and I looked. It was one of the dads in the room. That was one of the kids. <laughs> and once we establish that principle, then we can go on to the issue of sexuality because now they realize I'm not attacking anybody. I'm just trying to establish the fact that we can love people we disagree with. Wow. And this is one of the reasons why I disagree. And what do you say in a, in a setting where they hear that cognitively, but they still say, but you're still a hater. Right. So like emotionally, absolutely. like I agree, you can disagree with somebody and yeah. still love them, but you don't, you're a hater. And you Christians are haters because you're, you're stomping on people's little lifeline of their, who they think they are. Right. So again, the issue there isn't sexuality. The issue is how do you define hate? So we, I would actually challenge them on what that means. Because if hating simply means disagreeing with someone's belief system, doesn't their belief system then qualify as hateful as well? And, and even, even if they may not be happy at that point, I want to be able to at least leave a pebble in their shoe. That's one of the lines we use. There's a book there called Tactics by Greg Koch, one of the best books on how to converse with people. And he says, sometimes we, we think as Christians, oh, the only successful engagement is when we get person, a person to change their mind. But if you think about it, Jesus didn't change people's minds on the spot all the time. Mm -hmm. Sometimes he did, sometimes he didn't. And the story I go back to is this, uh, this uh, story of the rich young ruler. When he walks away upset, because Jesus tells him to go sell everything he had. But if you look at the, the story in Mark, Mark actually says this, and this is what, one of the key things that I try to check as well. Mark says, just before Jesus says, go sell everything you have, Mark writes, and Jesus loved him. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the key. Do we, when we engage these people, are we trying to win the argument? Or are we trying to win the person? And is our motivation out of love for this person, true love, not, not one that, that seeks to make someone feel good. True love is something that seeks to, to help people be good. And those are two different phrases. Not just feeling good, but being good. 
And, and I can, in ministry, as you know, there are times when I have to be difficult or, or problematic with one of the youth, my youth pastor, and say things that are hard. But I want them to know I say it because it's, it's a loving thing. And if the person's immature and doesn't realize that, then let them process that first before you get onto these specific topics. Wow. So if a student wants to get more information, both for their own heart or how to articulate these things, where do they go next? Yeah, the back, there's a table there with the contact cards. We'd love to have you connect with us. There's also a pamphlet there for the Identity Project. We'd love to have you guys take that at your church or your school. What's the Identity Project? The Identity Project is a project we created. It's online. It actually involves the PowerPoint slides. It has a discussion group, a leader's manual, a student's manual, a parent's manual that you can go through yourself uh, with a group of students or even adults. And what we do, did there was we wanted to approach the issue of sexuality and gender from a holistic perspective. So we don't just talk about homosexuality. We talk about pornography, about divorce. What, are, what, what is love? What is identity? So that when we're able to explain that part of our Christian worldview, young people don't just think, oh, we think homosexuality is wrong because we're a Christian. We want them to say, well, we believe that God gave us sexuality as a gift for husband and wife, and it's a good thing. Because what, what we're really hoping to get people to understand is that at the, end of the day, at the end of the day, every one of God's commands are good for us. And we should never have to compromise or belittle or water down God's commands because they're, they're life-giving. And we need to just be able to bring that back to our culture. The, the, the gospel never changes. Our culture does. Which means sometimes we have to change how we communicate the gospel because, like you said, words like hate or truth or God means something completely different from what our culture teaches. As an apologist, I actually don't use the word very often, but one of the things we do is train people to be able to translate the words we use so that people understand them. Hmm. So one quick example, if someone says, I no longer believe in God, I'm an atheist, you know, the first response that we like to give is, what do you mean by God? Because sometimes the definition they use of of God is not the same way we believe in anyone. And that's the same thing with this. What is hate? What is love? Uh, all of these kinds of words we throw around, I can guarantee you the vast majority of Canadians have not actually thought through what these words mean. When I went to the largest gay Christian conference in Chicago earlier this year, the theme of that conference was a love undivided. And that's, that's actually my thesis. That's why I wanted to go. And when I went there, I was hoping to get their take on the issue. But as I attended every main session and many breakout sessions I could f- attend, not one speaker ever defined the word love. And the one time I actually asked during Q&A time, the, the speakers in front of the panel, the panel that was talking looked at me like I, I asked them to take down their pants. Like they had no idea how to respond. And, and uh, one, the woman organizing the, organi- the, the talk even said, I don't even have words for love. I just have an image of people making sure they don't fall down, like we hold them up. I'm like, well, let me give you, uh, here's a definition from a Christian perspective. First John 4, 7 and 8, beloved, let us love one another for God is love. And I think that is really what's, what's key, what we've really missed. This debate is about the character of God, because we're debating what the nature of love is. Wow. So if you'd like a little bit more, uh, as Jojo said, on the back table, there is uh, contact cards. Do you guys have a website that this yeah, is on? faithbeyondbelief.ca. I think we might. Okay. I think we got lost of So faithbeyondbelief.ca, but visit me. I'll be hanging around. Answer Good. some questions. If you want to well. talk to Jojo uh, after he'll be up here, let's just pray for him and the ministry he has and pray for us as we seek to be winsome witnesses uh, to the truth. Father, I thank you today for a good reminder that we are who you say we are. 
even uh, above and beyond and before any of the other things we feel or others feel about us. Thank you that Jesus sees, sees a person and not just an identity. And I love that today. I pray for Jojo as he engages with people one-on-one and in group settings that you would continue to give him the ability to articulate your truth in a winsome and true way. Yes. Lord, would you help us to do that? We sometimes find it difficult to know how to express what we believe in a way that can be heard as life-giving mm-hmm. and loving. So we pray that we could do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks.